Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to another edition of Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming live at WCEV1450.com. For those of you who are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in. We're on every evening from 6 to 7 p.m. Central. And we invite you to keep up with us on social media by following us on Instagram and Twitter. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And make sure that if you're on Facebook that you have liked and you're following our page at Radio Islam USA. Now, the important thing you want to do if you are new to the program, because everybody that already listens, they are already subscribed. So you want to take a moment and subscribe to the podcast. That way you can go back and check out all of those great interviews and conversations that you missed out on, right? So now you're in. So wherever you are getting your podcast, look for us at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. All right, good people. Happy Monday. Um, I made it in just by the skin of my teeth. Uh, (laughs) uh, And I mean, no hyperbole at all. Uh, I literally got in here just a minute or two before we uh, went on air. And that is all thanks to the good folks uh, that are dealing with our air traffic control. And I, I don't want to blame United for it, but I had a flight out of Detroit at 1240. And it ended up being put, put it was pushed back four times, right? So four times. And I was thinking to myself, I said, man, I could have drove, right? I mean, because that's a three hours, less than four hours, right? So yeah, you live and you learn. Uh, I got to take a nap in the airport, right? So that's that's the that's the upside of that. So anyway, it's great to be back. Uh, we're in for a, a good week of discussions and conversations. Um, and of course, we always invite you to chime in. So if you want to do so, uh, as I've already mentioned, if you want to do so on our our Twitter feed or our Facebook page. You can do so, but if you just want to make a phone call, right, you want to just let your voice be heard, you can do so by calling us at 312-750-1178. That's 312-750-1178. Now, for those of you who are in Chicago, as a matter of fact, it's not even just Chicago because this this was national news. As a matter of fact, Ibrahim, Ibrahim mentioned it uh, in, the, uh, in, in the news report. And that is the ridiculous, I mean, an offensive number of homicides that took place in Chicago over the weekend. And the last time I looked, I thought I saw 50, but I heard you report. Did you report 60? Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, it is. OK, well, we're not going to use it then. Uh, unless you, if you see something like right away. But um, and then. To have 30 people die, 30 people killed. Was it 30 people in an hour or was that night or something like that? 30 people in three hours that were, were shot. And they are pointing this toward, they're saying that this is the result of, this is gang violence. So I think it's important, uh, this is a very, very layered conversation, right? There's a lot of, there are a lot of moving parts involved with it. But I think it's important for us to talk about this in terms of not just the outrage we have at the loss of life, but let's be proactive. Let's look, what can, what can we do to help to dismantle this dysfunction, 
right? What can we do? So I'm happy to have uh, joining us by phone, and we're going to give him a big pass. First of all, um, he's taking time out. I mean, when I say he's taking time out, right? So if if you hear his daughter go off on us, right, <laughs> she's demanding daddy time. <laughs> but we appreciate we appreciate our brother Brian Eccles. Um, he is the uh, Restorative Justice Hubs Coordinator for Community Justice for Youth Institute. And he knows all too well the, the power and probably the ignorance that's around this idea of restorative justice and the potential impact they can have on reducing rates of violence uh, in in these communities. So I want to thank you for, for joining us, Brother Brian. Yes, sir. Yeah. Peace. Peace, peace. Good evening. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I don't know if people are really aware as to what restorative justice is and the potential role, not the potential, but the active role that it plays in in addressing what the nation is looking at as a spectacle and what people are jumping up and screaming about and saying this is, you know, this is morally offensive. Can mm-hmm. you can you talk a bit about uh, just first of all, what restorative justice is again? Sure. So. Um, first of all, I want to thank you uh, for uh, calling on me this evening and in such a, you know, a time of trauma, man, and need. And mm-hmm. I want to thank you, thank all your listeners for, for tuning in. Um, but so restorative justice, um, Imam, is a is an age-old practice. If you can imagine when we were tribal people, a tribe consisted of, you know, anywhere from 30 to 50 individuals. Mm -hmm. And whenever there was a transgression within the tribe, we didn't go to the police, we didn't go to judges, you know, it was something that was handled internally. Mm -hmm. And it was handled inside of a circle. Chances are there may have been a fire in the center. And there was a methodology for in which all voices were heard. Mm-hmm. And um, we come together during that time period to, you know, the circle and restorative justice is used in many different ways. Um, at the root of it is circle work. Uh, we use circles uh, to heal, to celebrate, to uh, address conflict. Mm-hmm. So in, in a situation such as this, um, restorative justice would be used in a manner to... Okay, but I'm sorry. In, <laughs> in a manner to um, address uh, retaliation. So one of the things that we're hearing is that the police who were at, more in particular, Stroger Hospital, which was the county hospital, talked about um, how they heard people saying, you know, we know who did it. We know who did it, which right. means that they were going to retaliate. Right. In cases where we have uh, boots on the ground, so um, just to give you an idea of the structure of the restorative justice hubs, there there are a series of eight hubs um, that are strategically located in communities known as the Million Dollar Blocks. The Million Dollar Blocks are the top ten communities inside of Chicago that drive the most revenue into the prison industrial complex Mm -hmm. for young people between the ages of, say, 14 and 25. Mm. So through restorative justice practices, our goal is to interrupt violence, retaliation, um, to heal wounds, 
and trauma. Um, one of the things that we say in restorative justice is hurt people hurt people. Right, right. But we've graduated to the next level. And the next level is healed people heal people. Mm, I like this. Yes, sir, yeah. absolutely. So the, the practice is age old. Um, it's been used by indigenous tribes here in the Americas. Um, it was the tool that was used uh, to heal South Africa through apartheid. Right. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people aren't aware of that. And that same that same model, of what I understand, was also used um, with the um, Tutsi in the, in the Hutu. Yes, right? sir. Yes. After um, uh, uh, in Rwanda. Ring, yeah. Uh, say, it, say it again. The, I'm sorry. In Rwanda? The, uh, yes, the Yeah, the Tutsi and the, the Hutu. Yeah, I want to say that the, the name of the word is um, Karanga or Garanga or yeah. something of that nature. Yeah. But that is, that is the exact um, strategy that they used um, where um, those who were harmed were allowed to uh, address their, their hurt towards the individuals who hurt them. And those who hurt them, they were allowed to be heard. Um, And it was very, very powerful. Um, So, you know, it's not in the traditional justice system. Mm -hmm. um, They're catching up to a a practice like this. There are a lot of people who will say, you know, that's that's if you're using that type of process, you're soft on crime. Mm. Um, But, you know, we know. Uh, how powerful it is. Um, the public defender's office has sent um, public defenders to be trained by us. The state's attorney's office is, is looking at restorative justice. Um, we have um, uh, an initiative with the Chicago Police Department, even, um, where there are probably close to 100 police officers who have been trained in restorative justice called Bridging the Divide. Um, and, you know, we have a statewide initiative and a citywide initiative to turn Chicago as a city into a restorative city, to turn Illinois mm-hmm. uh, as a state into a restorative state. So, you know, what does that mean? You know, we, we have had a, um, I guess, we, well, obviously we've had a punitive model of justice, of law oh, enforcement. Yeah, and and it. Typically, is those who have the least resources and the least, yeah. least positioned or able to uh, advocate for themselves or yes, to uh, affect any type of social mobility. Yes, they are the ones who are the recipients of that punitive system. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. When we think about 30 people and three hours being, being killed and it being yes, related sir. directly to gang violence, mm-hmm. um, we know that there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of economy that, that, that surrounds this violence and I don't, oh, I, sure. I don't, you know, we're talking about the legitimate economy. Yes, sir. Um, what is, what will it take for, for this type of methodology to be implemented? Because in its implementation, it, it goes directly. It, it runs counter to the system mm-hmm. as it, you know, as it is constructed, as it exists yes, right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, what it will take is, for those individuals who have um, been trained in restorative justice, 
uh, experienced restorative justice um, to talk to our legislators and our state officials and our electeds to get them to understand the power of restorative justice. Um, you know, currently in Springfield, we have a restorative justice practitioner as a legislator. Oh, wow. And if you if you look at her legislation, her legislation, a lot of it is restorative in nature from getting booking stations out of the public schools mm-hmm. um, to um, addressing trauma that women who are incarcerated face uh, to get the system itself not to re-traumatize the women who are incarcerated right. through legislation. So um, when you have that type of influence or extended community that reaches into to our legislators, mm-hmm. that legislator has the ability to train, um, you know, other legislators to direct, um, to, to create, hold on, um, to create more just legislation. So, you know, people have to see it, people have to see it in action. People have to see it work. Um, people have to get trained, right? Right. We have to listen to some of the young people who, for example, um, one of our hubs is Precious Blood Ministries of Reconciliation at Back of the Yards, which is a um, borderline uh, African-American and Latino community. Mm -hmm. They have something called grieving circles um, where mothers who have had their young um, sons or daughters killed uh, through street violence uh, and mothers who have had their their sons and daughters incarcerated, um, some cases, uh, Imam, uh, you have the mothers whose children killed the mother whose grieving son. Mm in the same circle, healing each other, right? Talking about the power of forgiveness, talking about the power of community, where the mothers who had their sons, who lost their sons, go to the prisons where the other son is to let that, that, that child really right because chance when he was a child is when he created the, you know, the the crime. Mm -hmm. Um, and the mother tells that child, you know, I forgive you, and you're my son now. I mean, man, this is some very wow. powerful stuff. And, you know, when, when you talk about uh, a community that has been um, relying on, um, you know, the traditional criminal justice system, mm-hmm. getting free of that system, you have to understand that there's going to be resistance. Because what we're doing is we're creating a completely independent process of the way that we've been conditioned to think is the only way to to have justice administered. Let me ask you this. Are the the majority of uh, uh, the the hubs, are they in faith-based institutions or are these in, are they in schools? And I'm I'm asking for for a very, I'll I'll wait for the answer first and then I'll tell you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, and this is this is not been by choice, mm-hmm. um, but many of the institutions, many of the hubs 
are connected to faith-based institutions. Okay. Um, ranging, you know, from uh, many different denominations. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, like I said, it, it's not the way that we planned it. Right. It's just that based on the <clears throat> pillars, um, it seems that the faith-based organizations kind of naturally do what the pillars call for. So, you know, one of my one of my duties was, you know, to go out and identify probable organizations. Mm-hmm. And what I would do um, is basically check their DNA. Mm-hmm. And I would match their DNA to the pillars that we had. And if, if that organization kind of did things in the manner that we we do things, then they would be invited to become a host. Right, right. So, you know, I asked for, for a couple of reasons. But yes, most sir. importantly is I believe that with the number of faith-based uh, institutions, uh, with the number of, of, of uh, houses of worship that we have, in mm-hmm. black and brown communities where mm-hmm. the majority of this violence is taking place, mm-hmm. that it, it is incumbent upon these institutions, right? I hold myself accountable as a leader yes, of one sir. of these, yes, um, that this is something that we, every, you know, it's, it's all hands on deck. Oh, absolutely. Right? I mean, you know, the churches, well, the, the, the faith-based institutions are pillars of the community, right? And, and, and there is an expectation that we have been, conditioned to have, uh, socialized to have when it comes to our faith-based institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we, many of us by our teachings or just by coming, growing up in, in a society like this, we look to faith-based institutions to heal us um, when we're hurt. Right. So, um, yeah, it's, it's almost a, a natural default. Right. right. Um, and our partners that are around the table have been uh, amazing partners um, in how they incorporate restorative justice and, and um, you know, the faith, faith system. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, let me ask this, this last question for you. Uh, and we want to thank your... Thank your your beautiful daughter for allowing us to borrow, borrow you for a minute. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I will definitely pass the word on. <laughs> uh, so my last, I guess, observation, or just to get your thoughts on on, on this this idea, <clears throat> is that even with to accompany the, the idea of restorative justice um, hubs, yes, um, that there is also an economic there's an economic um, aspect of this that also has to be addressed because um, we've been, and I, I hate to say that I've had to bring this stat up uh, up more than two or three times just in the past week, it feels like. And that is that 2016 report where it says that 47% of uh, African-American young men were either, they were out of school and, and unemployed. Yeah. Now yes. with that type of, with that type of uh, landscape, Mm-hmm. Is there a situation or an opportunity where businesses can also begin to lend their resources and voices to these hubs? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because the healing, absolutely, we need that, right? But the, yeah. the circumstances that lead these young men quite often out into the street to pick up a weapon, right, are often rooted in not having 
um, you know, there, there's an economic uh, side to that as well. So yeah. there, there might be there might be a whole lot, but I'm wondering, do, do you foresee a point where business become, begins to become more involved with these hubs as well uh, to start addressing so, those some those other issues? Yeah. So um, okay. So what we know that um, one of the best ways to stop a bullet mm-hmm. is to have a job. Yes. What we what we do know is that our young people, the young people who are most affected, 14 to 24 year olds, mm-hmm. who are still developing in their brains, who are still finding their way, um, are um, disproportionately un- unemployed. Right. So if if we could find job programs for these young people, um, that would be one way to potentially um, address the crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there are some corporations that have um, put resources into uh, a broader citywide initiative called Communities Partnering for Peace, Okay, um, where some uh, corporations have anted up to address crime um it's a it's it's one step forward what we need to do is to create you know we need to go back to vocational schooling yeah we need to go back to because college isn't for everyone Mm -hmm. but we need to um really hold up the high schools that really that that push uh and at um prepare our young people in the trades yeah but but the bigger thing is they have to be able to transition to work. Mm-hmm. Um, social promotion is an issue. And what I mean by that is you get, you know, 17, 18-year-olds who have been passed through year after year after year yeah. and can't read and can't fill out an application. Right, right. That is where our faith-based institutions can also play a role and fill a gap. Mm-hmm. Um where we can make these young people feel comfortable about not being able to read and saying that we're going to be there. And um, if you look at the pillars on our website, site, rjhubs.com, mm-hmm. uh, there is one of our pillars is called accompaniment. One of our hubs says that we do life together. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They took that, that, that like adage it. doing life in prison and changed it. Right. Like, right. We do life with our young people. You know, the organization that I used to lead, one of the things that we never did is we never gave a, uh, a traditional social service referral. Mm-hmm. We would uh, um, go with young people to the Social Security office and help them to understand the process of, you know, what does it mean to get your Social Security card? How do you get it? What are they, you know, asking you to fill out, right? Because... Mm-hmm. When people are consuming social services, today may be the day that they say, if I don't get the help that I need, which in many cases is accompaniment, mm-hmm. someone to walk me through the process, I'm done. I'm not going to, to any more social service agencies. I'm just going to figure it out on my own. And in many cases, figuring it out means that I'm just going to be a part of, you know, the community that everyone around me is, is a part of and mm-hmm. we're not trying at all to to do you know anything to improve the, the you know our quality of life right let me ask you 
Uh, what's that website again? Did you say RJ Hubs? Because I'm putting that on our, our, yes, sir. our Facebook RJ page. RJ Hubs, like restorativejusticehub.org. Right. Oh, .org. Okay. All yes, right. sir. That's why I messed mm-hmm. up that. Well, look, Brother Brian, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Yes, um, sir. And we need to get you in studio and, 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 and spend the whole hour chopping it up with you. Man, I would I would absolutely love to um, because, as you know, this is this is it's just a symptom of a bigger problem. Right. Yeah. Uh, what happened this weekend is not really about gangs. No, it it's it's a it's a symptom of poverty. Exactly. You know, exactly. those young people, a lot of people were like, how, how is somebody 12 years old out in the street at, you know, 1 a.m.? Well. Mm-hmm. When you're in poverty, you don't have air conditioning. Right. And everybody's outside. Right. To beat the heat. Yeah. Well, you know, and and that never is talked about. So I I would love to have a deeper conversation with you. Well, we're going to definitely make that happen. Uh, Yes, sir. So uh, keep doing the uh, great work you're doing. And yes, sir. You too. Yes. So uh, Radio Slam family, we have been we have been talking with Brian Eccles. He is the restorative jobs. Excuse me. Restorative justice hubs. uh, coordinator at the Community Justice for Youth. Uh, so uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we've got a special report for you. You're going to hear the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg. Right? Okay. This is Radio Slime, WCV 1450 AM. We'll be right back in a moment. People have all kinds of excuses for not saving energy. I didn't plug it in. I'll turn it off later. It's not my music. It's just one phone charger. So um, we don't have those Energy Star appliances. So that old window leaks. How much energy and money could the new ones really save? Maybe it's time to stop making excuses and start doing some simple things to save the energy and resources we can. Because a little here and a little there can add up to a lot later. And you just never know what people will need in the future. My name is Sarah, and I'm going to get started today. We can all help save more energy for tomorrow. What's your excuse? For more energy-saving tips that also save money, visit loseyourexcuse.gov parents. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Ad Council, and the station. Hey, America, we need to have a little talk. I don't know if you've noticed, but we got a lot of food in this country. A lot of peaches, a lot of corn, a lot of apples, a lot of everything. We've got so much food that we can't even eat it all. So if we got all this extra food, how are 17 million kids in America struggling with hunger? I just don't get it. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks gathers surplus food and gets it to the hungry kids who need it. They can get you food even if you live in Idaho or Alaska or somewhere crazy like that. This isn't complicated. We got extra food and we got hungry kids. Feeding America's done the math. Now it's your turn. Support Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. I know you got internet on your phone, so what are you waiting for? We can't do it without your help. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff 
and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872-806-0141. That's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we are still broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. Haven't went anywhere. We are streaming at WCEV1450.com. And for those of you who are just tuning in, well, you can listen to what you missed possibly tomorrow, right? We should have the, uh, the podcast will be up tomorrow. And you can find that wherever you get your podcasts, and that's at Radio Islam USA. So if that's tune in, iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, at Radio Islam USA. And make sure that you are keeping up with us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. Send us a tweet or post on our Facebook page. Let us know uh, that you're with us, that you're in the fam, the family. Okay? All right. So we're going to get into a... Excuse me, a, a special segment, an uh, interview done by the impressive one, my brother, assistant producer, extraordinaire, engineer, Ibrahim Beg. And he had a great conversation with Faizan Rahman, who recently went to uh, a trip with his university to Tanzania. And there's a bit more that we'll get into in some, some other time, but we're going to listen to this conversation about that trip. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. You are listening to Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM here in Chicago. As you can tell, I am Ibrahim Beg, our host, Tariq El Amin, the Imam. He is Missing in action briefly, but he'll be back with us later. So I'm filling in for him. Uh, today we are going to have a conversation with Faizan Rahman on the situation of public, like public health situation in Tanzania. Uh, Faizan Rahman is a master's candidate at Benedictine University in Lyle, Illinois, right, in the public health sector. So, assalamu alaikum. Walaikum assalam. Thanks for having me. Oh, alhamdulillah. Um, so, just start off by uh, filling us in on the purpose of your trip, like how you got into the trip, how you got into it, um, everything like that. Okay, so essentially, um, for the public health program at Benedictine, you have to take a class called Global Health, and it was offered in class as well as overseas in Tanzania. So for me, I was like, you know, if I can take in Tanzania, why not take it there? And um, luckily, there was um, funding and whatnot available that people donated, so the cost wasn't that big of a deal, so that's why I opted to take uh, the trip there. Um, The reasoning behind this trip was we wanted to perform a community health analysis for the people of Tanzania, um, for the village of Emiliwaha, 
which is a small Catholic convent. And how we Benedictine has ties with them is that a couple of the priests and sisters actually go to school at Benedictine, so we had ties there. And no one's really ventured out there to see, you know, like what are these people's strengths, what are their weaknesses, how can we help them? So that's why, um, yeah. So do they have that trip every year? Um, so last year was the first time they went, but the thing was last year um, <laughs> they pretty much just handed out a couple, you know, life straws or like, here you go. They didn't really do what we did. Like we interviewed literally every part of the community there from like students to teachers to principals to priests. Um, pretty much everyone there, orphans, the orphanage, every place there we literally interviewed to see what were the strengths and weaknesses whereas last year they didn't really do that they just went to the health clinic and interviewed like a couple patients but it wasn't really in-depth like how ours was yeah that's cool i'm gonna get into the details of that um in a minute but um how many people went on the trip with you so it and was, were they all from Benedictine, or were they from different places? Yeah, so all of them are students. There was six students, including myself, um, and then our professor. So you landed in which city? Uh, Dar es Salaam, which is like the main city of Tanzania. Mm-hmm. Yep. Did you stay there for a while? Or uh, no, so as soon as we landed, we pretty much took a, a bus to the village we went to um, called Imiliwaha. It's actually a really, really small village. If you, you can't even find it on the map, that's honestly how small it is. It was um, roughly an like eight, 18-hour bus ride. 18 hours yes. on the bus? Yes. Was it like a small bus or like a big? It was. I mean, it was good for maybe like 10 people. Mm-hmm. And luckily, you know, they had air conditioning too. And honestly, like, it was, it was draining, but taking the bus was really beautiful because you could, you know, just see, like, the greenery and all the nature there that, you know, you've seen on TV, but seeing it in real life is really extraordinary. What was the landscape? Was it many different types of landscapes, or was it all, like, one big so a forest? Was it, like, a grasslands? What was it like? Yeah, so essentially when we got to Dar es Salaam, it was pretty much like any, you know, typical small city. Um, the roads were kind of bad, but once we ventured out, maybe 45 minutes to an hour, it was grassy, plain areas, but there was mountains in the distance. Um, there's a lot of greenery there. There was a lot of trees. I didn't really see, like, any jungles or anything like that, but there was a lot of mountains. Um, there was a small sector, probably, like, 30-minute stretch where there was uh, signs for animals. So that's where I actually saw – it was really cool. You saw random, like, baboons across, you know, running across the street – um, I saw zebras, I saw like a giraffe, I saw elephants like on the side, which is really extraordinary just to see, you know, even though I was driving. Was it, were they completely wild or was it like? Yeah, a, they were like wild. A, they were just wild. there. Yeah, but it was like, it's, it's cool how there was like a small stretch of land that it said like, you know, animals are here, but I didn't see any other animals like that ever again, like on the trip. So that was really cool. Hmm, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then, so after 18 hours, you got to the village. Yes. So we got there. It was it was nighttime. We were all really drained. Um, so I was the only guy there, so I had my own room while the other students um, shared rooms. Luckily, so the thing was, it was an 18-hour bus ride because of the elevation as well. It was really high up in the mountains. So luckily, like when we landed in Dar es Salaam, the weather was really humid. The high was 85, the low was 75. But once we got to um, Imiliwaha, the high was 62 and the low was 39 at night. So uh, it was really, yeah, so it was really in cold. In the summer. Huh? Yeah, yeah. No, actually, this is, their, this is their cold season, I guess. 
So we lucked oh, okay. out, and you know, like Ramzan was going on too. So luckily for me, you know, I, I opted to fast because you know fasts were way shorter. So I was like, why not? And the weather's not bad, so you know, why not? <laughs> and so you were there with the. Um, there's a convent in the village, right? Yes. So because now explain how the convent is associated with uh, Benedictine. So a couple of the the priests and um, the sisters there go to Benedictine. Benedictine helps fund in some situations, but the convent has many, many donors. So that's how we have ties with them. And Benedictine is like a Catholic university? Yes, yes. Benedictine is a Catholic university. So actually one of the fathers there, um, he goes to Benedictine and I met him. And the cool thing about the villagers, everyone is really, really nice. Um, I told them, you know, when I was fasting, they're like, oh, why are you eating? Because they're, they're really strict with food. Like, you can only pretty much get food, you know, in the morning at a certain time at lunch or dinner. So when I would go and not eat or if I wasn't there, they'd ask, oh, what's wrong? Are you sick? And when I told them, oh, I'm Muslim and fasting, they're really understanding. And there's, you know, at night, um, they actually gave me porridge at dinner the night before. Like, oh, if, you know, when you fast in the morning or we need food in the morning, because we would eat around, I think, fasting ended around like 5.20, 5.30 there. But we have, uh, I think, breakfast around 7 or 8. So to, they're really accommodating, and they made me porridge, you know, so I had food in the next day. I didn't pick that up. Why were they so strict about when to eat? Well, because everyone has their assigned roles. Um, so, like, people who set the tables, for example, like, they'll be doing something else. You know, they might be helping students. Um or like you know like making candles like everyone there has their own specific task that they do that you know there's no one really not doing anything even the students there um if they're not in school they are helping in some way shape or form um i think i saw some they're, they're trying to make like crafts they were working on their craftsmanship there they're trying to make beds and then there's candle making and basket making just to try to help uh, make more you know money available for the convent Okay, so now tell us about the um, the health situation. So the health situation, obviously when you com- compare it to America, is really tough. So when we went to the med bay there, um, we interviewed like the dentist, for example. And when we were talking to the dentist, she was really smart. She was really qualified. But she was saying um, there's a lot of issues where like they don't have specific tools for um, some surgeries. So a lot of times they'll pull the tooth when, you know, in reality you don't even need to pull it. You just maybe you needed like a cap or something like that, but they had to pull it. And then there was instances. Wait, for, they have to pull it just because they don't have the resources. Yeah, to the specific tools. Do yeah, like a regular procedure. Yeah, like if let's say it needs like a, like you need like a cap or something, or if you need a filling, a lot of times they don't have the tools to give you a filling, so they have to take the tooth out. Another issue they were saying is the dentist, you know, witch doctors and whatnot, that people will take someone else's word for it and wait to the last minute where it's too late, you have to take the tooth out. Um, one thing that really, really shocked me was that the dentist was telling us that people pass out a lot because of uh, the numbing uh, agent that they receive. And when I asked, like, I thought, you know, it's rare, obviously, you know, if people pass, it's not, you know, people passing out, you don't think it happens all the time, but she's like, no, like, it happens all the time. Because what type of numbing agent they use, I guess it has some type of reaction, but they keep using it, which is really shocking to me, because when I asked her, like, when does happen, she's like, oh, it happens all the time. They keep using it because they have nothing they else? They have nothing else to use. Wow. Yeah, so that was really eye-opening for me. So do you think 
the um, the situation in this village that we got? What was the name of it again? Uh, Emiliwaha. Emiliwaha. Yes. Do you think it's representative of the broader health situation in, in the country? I think the health situation definitely is way worse anywhere else because, you know, the convent has funding. Um, they have, actually, when I land where we were staying, they have a bunch of, like, 20, 30, 40 acres of fruits and vegetables so they're way well off. When I was driving to um, the convent, that's where I saw, like, you know, random villages on the side of the road. And I even saw, like, mosques there on the side of the road, and those were way worse. I can't even imagine how, you know, medical uh, situation is throughout uh, the, the country. Another shocking thing was in the medical center there, they don't really have, like, a real doctor. They have people that know what to do in certain situations, but they don't have an actual, like, doctor there. Um like women, if they're pregnant and ready to give birth, they only have like five or six beds. So it's if you show up and you're like the seventh woman, oh, I'm pregnant to give birth, they're like, oh, too bad, we don't have any more beds. It's 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 really really bad, yeah. And this was so you said this is kind of a step up from yes, what's probably around in the yes, rest of the that's country. what I'm assuming because it was a closed off convent. They have you know uh, like clean water for the most part. They had to boil it, but they had clean water. They have fruits and vegetables. Um, they have electricity for the most part. It's it used to it goes out at night, but they still have it for the time being, for the most part during the day. Okay, well, that's actually yeah, pretty shocking. Um, describe for us your day to day procedure, which you did there as a researcher. So essentially, um, what happened was the first couple of days we just kind of hung out, you know, acclimated to the weather, the temperature, just try to adjust. But once we got situated, um, we received the chore of the convent. Um, when we walked around, we saw how big it really was. And in the distances, there was mountains, and beyond those mountains, there was villages. And the sisters were telling us how a lot of um, villages depend on the convent if they ever need you know, water or food or if someone gets sick because the villages literally have no one, they have to come here, and sometimes it's like a day's journey. Um, so we got a rough idea of that. Then we got a tour of um, the schools, the orphanage, specific businesses like printing presses where they make books, as well as like candle-making uh, businesses and whatnot. And after we got acc acclimated to where everything was, that's when we began to interview people for whether it's like orphans, students, people who ran the orphanage, um, priests, sisters, pretty much every anyone we could talk to about their situation, we would talk to. Um, there's actually a retreat there, so there were some um, priests that like come visit, but they're not necessarily from that area. And we interviewed them as well to see what's the issue that these people have on a day-to-day -day basis, as well as what are their strengths or their weaknesses. Hmm, that's interesting. Did anything stand out from the interviews that you did? So, basically, how close that these people are was really eye-opening to me. Um, everyone supports one another. Everyone there was really cheery and smiley. Like, no one knew who I was, but if I was walking, I'd look at someone, they just smile. Like, there was, I never got frowned upon, I never got looked down upon, even though I was a total outsider, you know? So that was really eye-opening for me. But the issues that I thought you know what were the biggest issues were electricity and water and pretty much that's what everyone said 
there's only one person that said that that was one of the biggest issues and that those were the cooks, but I'm assuming they're given clean water all the time because they provide, uh, they have to make the food for the village. So electricity and water, those are the yes. two main things. So that's kind of outside the, I mean, fixing that problem is kind of mm-hmm. outside the realm of medicine, right? Mm-hmm. Or public, or that's still within the domain of public health, I guess. Yes. But that would require, I mean, governmental uh, intervention or something like that. Yes. So I think for the public health, our our job wasn't necessarily to fix their problem by ourselves, but address what is the issue, what can you do to fix it, like maybe give them ideas and plans. So for funding, actually, to get money for electricity or clean water, we were thinking about, you know, they make candles there that maybe, you know, you could sell online or something that, you know, if they're handmade, and then on top of you see where the cause is going, you'll buy them. Uh, Same thing with baskets. And then for the water situation, we're talking about having, you know, maybe wells made, um, for electricity situation, we're thinking about, you know, maybe a dam or some type of, you know, hydropower to help with the electricity because right now they do have a lake that helps and they also have solar panels. But the thing is, sometimes, you know, if the water gets lessened in the lake and whatnot, the, water, the electricity might get cut. And on top of that, the solar power doesn't always work because they have rainy season and it rains a lot there. So their electricity for solar power is gone. So that's what we're thinking about. What are their ways? Like maybe generators or something, but then they need funds. So we're just, you know, trying to see what we can do. Yeah, that's uh, so. That's interesting. But so there's no immediate solution. I mean, there's a long. I mean, it's going to require a long-term. Yeah. Plan. Yeah, I think it's take a long-term plan for sure because the conduit's very, very large. It's thirty, forty acres, and there's a lot of people that live there. So the currently, I think the government does help, um, and there's a lot of funding there that you know our school donates money to, and there's other organizations. Um, as when we were at the orphanage, we we were um, being told that there's an Italian organization that helps with the children there. So every child is doesn't have to worry about food or water or shelter. What kind of role does the government of Tanzania play in all this? So from what I was told, there's a certain percentage of funding that they give um, I'm not sure how much but they just help try to help out as much as they can but I was told there's a lot of corruption there in the government so it's really tough to get you know ample numbers like if you need a specific number you won't always get it um, in terms of aid but luckily there's other organizations that help out so is the research that you guys did there is it going to go back into a database and be assimilated into a, a bigger project? Yes, so what's going to happen is our class was essentially phase one. Um, next year another class will go and hopefully build on the information that we gathered and the data we gathered. That's cool. Would you ever go back again? Yeah, it was it was really eye-opening experience, honestly. Um, for me, going, we, so we went with not only our professor, uh, but, you know, there is the students that went to our school. So, you know, we had someone we knew. And then on top of that, there was also a police officer that was with us in certain areas. So I guess going alone, I'd be kind of uncomfortable because I have no idea, like, you know, the situation there. And you don't know any of the people there. When you went to a, we went to a town, actually, close to the village because uh, we needed SIM cards for our phones. And 
the police officer told us like you know make sure you guys are all close together make sure your phones are you know like not shown out make sure you're you know in the car when you guys leave don't show anything in the windows so that's the thing it was kind of scary but it was really cool for me if i could go again with you know the same group of people or you know with the same task at hand trying to help people then i definitely go how did it um on the trip live up to your expectations were you nervous first of all were you nervous before you went and then how did you feel after you went and like when you got back so was it go- what you expected or was it like totally different yeah so going definitely i was definitely nervous because you hear about you know i had to get a bunch of vaccines and a bunch of you know medications and whatnot for malaria and all these hepatitis and all these possible you know disease that i could get so that was kind of nerve-wracking because <laughs> i'm scared of needles so that was you know a hurdle by itself but then going there you know i saw a lot of pictures what to expect and i don't know it's like you've seen you know discovery channel all these things on tv but in my head i knew it can't, like where we're going it can't be that bad because we're going as students right and they're not going to put us in a situation that's super dangerous so i was a little you know calmed down by that but once we got there it's everything was like it was a convent so it was closed off in gates um there weren't any outsiders walking in at night um so i felt pretty safe there and then leaving was i don't know i, I really missed it because life there was so simple and yet like i felt like in america a lot of issues that we have are man-made where it's like oh what did this person say on facebook about this person what this person say about twitter where there it's very life is very simple you know you work hard to survive and that's pretty much how it is we're here all the i feel like most of the issues we have as americans for you know average americans is man-made issues so that was really eye-opening for me so you feel like their concerns the concerns that they have are more like um like life and death type of concerns or very important as as opposed to us here we're concerned with more superficial stuff yes absolutely wow. okay so that was all about that trip now <laughs> tell us you are going on another trip an yes even better trip inshallah. yes inshallah yes so me and my family are planning to go to hajj inshallah this wednesday night inshallah your first time yes i went to omrah three years ago with my mother so you know i had a rough idea of what you know like the environment might be like but then again for hajj i'm expecting you know like 10 times the amount of people that were there for omrah yeah you've never seen crowds like that no <laughs> and you got you got, also got to get all your shots and everything yes yes so i had to get all my that. immunization and then all mm-hmm. that and that was pretty hectic and then um actually like you know i started kind of feeling under the weather so they can do a like well let me please help me out don't make me sick before i go yeah. <laughs> inshallah may allah make the trip successful um you inshallah. know the hadith that when you do a hajj and you do it properly mm-hmm. you come back you're as you're sinless as the way you were when you were born so may allah accept it from you and all your family inshallah. Um, inshallah. all right we appreciate you being here thank you so much uh, for having appreciate me. you enlightening us enlightening us on the at least getting a glimpse of the public health situation in Tanzania. And I assume that's very similar in the rest of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, mm-hmm. right? Yes. If not worse. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, Faizan Rahman, like we said, is an MS candidate at Benedictine University. He was joining us on his trip. 
to about his trip to Tanzania from a public health perspective, and we thank him for being here. Um, and that will do it for us for now. And inshallah, Imam Tariq will be back with us next time. <laughs> but uh, this has been Ibrahim Beg, Radio Islam. And assalamu alaikum. May the peace and only God give be upon you. Yes, yes. <laughs> Great work. Great work, brother. Good stuff, good stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to laugh, right, because I'm, I'm here and I'm listening, right? Um, hey, but we keep it moving. That's what we do. We keep it moving. So um, uh, Ibrahim picked it up, and uh, great conversation. Hope you benefited from it. Now, I'm going to say, because we only got a few minutes, right? Um, but we're going to be talking about something. It's going to be, we're going to be having some future conversations that are layered on this idea of how we relate Islam to not necessarily the idea of social struggle, um, right? Because we, we have a lot of theological conversations. Um, there's there's a lot of uh, differentiation in, in the way people see things, right? But the one thing that we should see universally and clearly is that uh, there's this idea that you position yourself when you are fighting for justice, you position yourself at the intersection of, of those who are most affected. I won't say anything else about that right now because, inshallah, with God's permission, God willing, we're going to have the the the, uh, the coming days to, to unpack that and talk more about it. I can't wait to talk to you all a little bit more about some of the great organizations uh, that we're going to be look, look to have on. I'm um, just going to give a quick shout-out to uh, Muslim Ark, Marguerite, uh, and uh, Namira, uh, just two powerhouse uh, leaders. Uh, give a shout-out to, to, to uh, Cam Rashad, to, to Donna Austin, to the whole um, Muslim Wellness uh, Foundation, um, Sapelo Square, Dr. Suad and her team um, give one out to um, the Radiance Brilliance show, right? We need to, we got to get y'all on here. Okay, now I'm down to the 60 seconds. And so we want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, join us tomorrow night. Our guest is going to be Khalil Ismail. Good conversation. Looking forward to it. Thank our engineer over at WCEV. Ramon, thank you very much, sir. We thank our engineer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg. Uh, he and I are the, produce, the producers for tonight. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. Um, who else? Well, well, that's about it. We're going to tell you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken uh, as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. See, I'm jet lagged, right? And I've only coming from Detroit. How you get jet lagged? Anyway, family, we'll see you tomorrow night, inshallah. We're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.